Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. His first weather report came over the radio back in 1969 and spoke of a hurricane named Camille heading toward the Gulf Coast. Since then, Brian Norcross has covered dozens of major weather events, including Hurricane Andrew, which changed South Florida and his life forever. Brian has worked at local news stations, national cable networks, and the Weather Channel. He has seen it all, done it all, and has the stories to prove it. Today we hear about Brian's 50 years in broadcasting, a career filled with incredible timing, amazing achievements, and a whole lot of fun. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and it's a pleasure to talk to Brian Norcross. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, uh, Marshall. Very, very happy well, to be Well, first here. of all, let me just congratulate you. 50 years, Brian. That, that's amazing. It's interesting because, uh, you know, that's uh, 1969 is kind of special for me, too, because I, that's when I kind of came on the scene there. And, I, and I, you know, I was born here in Georgia, but then quickly moved to Florida. So uh, hurricanes, my dad still lives and he worries about hurricanes and he knows about Brian Norcross. So it's really an honor <laughs> to be talking to you. Uh, you've had all kinds of experiences from CNN to the Weather Channel, uh, Miami. Atlanta. Uh, I want to get into all of that, but before we dive into that, just tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up and how'd you become a weather geek? Well, I grew up in uh, East Central Florida in Brevard County uh, near Cape Canaveral. My father was a NASA engineer. We moved to that area uh, with the beginning of the Apollo program in 1962. And, you know, he was one of the many, many engineers that were in World War II, uh, educated under the GI Bill and got a degree in engineering. And uh, and then in the early 60s, uh, descended on uh, Florida in the area around Cape Canaveral because President Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon. And through the 60s, uh, that's where I lived and that's where uh, he worked. And I was, as a result of, uh, I guess, genetics and whatever, I was kind of a science person, but I was also very interested in broadcasting. So uh, in spite of the fact that I I lived through some hurricanes, uh, Hurricane Betsy, I was out surfing with Hurricane Betsy offshore of Central Florida, Uh, Cleo, I remember, Donna, um, I remember in New Jersey, my earliest memory of anything Hurricane Hazel in 1954 that knocked the power out when I was three years old in uh, New Jersey. Uh, but even with all of that, it really wasn't. Uh, I'm not like like you and and most uh, every meteorologist I know that can identify the the moment that got them interested <laughs> in weather. With me, uh, I was a, really a broadcaster, and I was working as a news manager. I was running a news department. In Louisville, Kentucky, and my uh, I was 27, 28 years old, and I was doing that, and I I realized that uh, what I was missing was all my science background, and that weather was the confluence of science and broadcasting, and so that's what encouraged me to quit that career and go back to Florida State and get my master's and uh, see if I could do it, and uh, that led to CNN and. Uh, all variety of things in the future, 
and all variety of, of uh, big weather events. Yeah, and I, I heard a little rumor about uh, an experience of yours in Louisville with, a, I guess, your first big weather event. It was a strange confluence of events. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? I, I heard it involved a snowstorm back in 1978. <laughs> it, it was the uh, amazing confluence of events. You can't even imagine it happening today, I suppose it could. But what happened was I was in Denver, and I was uh, producing the 10 o'clock news at the what became the number one station. We were very successful with the program I was producing. And the company uh, promoted me to run the news department at their Louisville station. So it was getting to be the end of 1977. And in Denver, the big story were the Denver Broncos and the Orange Crush defense. And the question was whether they were going to be able to uh, win in the playoffs and go to the Super Bowl in January. Well, uh, the station said to me, "Okay, you can take that Louisville job, but if the Broncos go to the Super Bowl, you have to stay here in Denver and produce uh, the coverage for us. And I said, uh, okay. Well, guess what? They went to the Super Bowl. It was their first (laughs) Super Bowl. It was a big deal thing in Denver. Yes. The day after that, I flew to Louisville, landed, went right out and looking for apartments because that's what I needed to do before I went back to Denver to eventually drive uh, uh, to Louisville with my stuff. Well, uh, I I had done that. I I got to the hotel, which was right down the street from the TV station. Uh, I was in bed and uh, it started to snow a little bit that evening before. Well, five o'clock in the morning, my phone rings and it's uh, the guy who ran the news department uh, on the assignment desk. And he said, uh, Brian, there's been an incredible snowstorm overnight. I don't think I can get to the station. Uh, You're the closest one. Go down there and see what's going on and what you can do. So I made my way down to the station. What came with the job was a Ford LTD, this huge honking Ford (laughs) car. I kind of plowed my way down to the TV station, left the car kind of in a drift down at the bottom of the hill. Walked up and pounded on the back door. And if you can imagine, uh, there were two engineers in there at the time keeping the station on the air overnight. And they let me in. I said, I'm the new news director. They said, okay, come on in. And uh, I went in the newsroom, turned on the lights, turned on the monitors, turned on the printers, and, and I found out what was going on. But I had never really been in that newsroom before. So right. it was just completely new everything. Uh, and I'm looking at the clock, and I'm looking at the clock, and it's coming up to news time. And I say, uh, wait a minute, there's nobody here. And so I go find the engineers, and I, and I say, what, what goes on here in the morning? Who comes in? They say, well, Fran should be here. By now, she was the anchor, and obviously she was caught in the, the snow somewhere. And, you know, this was before cell phones, so you couldn't just call in and check in and so forth. So as news time was coming, finally, I said to the engineers, if we aim a camera at the desk, can, can you put me on TV? And that's what we did. And uh, so I went on. And as it turned out, I was the only one in Louisville able to get to a TV station, the only actual human coverage of the snowstorm early that uh, that uh, Tuesday morning. And it was this uh, incredible 14 inches of snow that fell overnight, incapacitated the city uh, completely. And they had a, a, a law in in the Louisville that they'd passed because they hadn't had any snow in a while. So they, they got rid of their city plows and said, well, we'll just uh, hire private plows. 
But the rule was that they had to have a city council meeting in order to hire the private plows and uh, approve it. Well, guess what? Nobody could get to the city council to have a meeting to hire the plows. So so I thought this is incredible news, right? This is really big stuff. Once finally an hour and an hour and a half, two hours later, people started making it in in the news department. And uh, I said, I want, as a new news director, even though I'm not even officially news director yet, not even officially working here yet, but I want the mayor of Louisville on our TV station answering the questions of what is the city doing about this? This is just a huge screw up, you know, incredible. And uh, I said, I want the mayor. And they're looking at me like, yes, yes, get the mayor on. And so we physically pushed the remote truck out of the lot. We were the only remote truck that actually got out on the road, got down there. We're running the wires to the mayor's office. And um, I get this call from the assignment tech. that said, there are, you, you, the judge is on the phone. You need to speak to the, to the judge. I said, Joe, what do I need to talk to a judge for? Uh, no, no, you got to talk to him. Okay. <laughs> judge, what can I do for you? Well, I've, you know, I understand you're putting the camera down at the mayor's office. I insist that you bring that camera to my office. And if I, I said, Judge, I really wish I could help you. But the camera's at the mayor's office. If you've got something to add to this fiasco, then I suggest you go down there. Well, that judge's name was Mitch McConnell. Oh, wow. And, and as it turned out, he, being Republican, the, the mayor was a Democrat named Stansbury. They hated each other. Politically, sure. and I think personally as well. Then sure. McConnell had never been to Stansbury's office, let alone to be on television. But he went down there, so I actually built a little bridge that yeah. uh, that morning, and not, not knowing at all what I was doing. Yeah, anyway, that's, that maybe that was my Louisville story. Starting starting of a long career of building bridges, <laughs> perhaps. But yeah, I, you know, you've had such an illustrious career. We're talking with um, Brian Norcross about his fifty years of broadcasting. We're going to talk about a lot of interesting topics today: hurricanes, Andrew, Superstorm Sandy, naming winter storms. So hang around because we've got a lot to talk about today. But uh, before we get to our sort of uh, sort of transition point. I want to kind of circle back to the weather report over the radio at 16 years old for Hurricane Camille, because Hurricane Camille, I think for many people, I mean, I I remember my parents talking about Hurricane Camille. And since then, we've had Katrina's and Sandy's and Andrew's. But tell us about your perspective, particularly as a 16 year old about Hurricane Camille and give, give some of the younger listeners some perspective on this storm as it compares to things we're seeing today. Okay, well, in 1969, I was actually 18, and it was my second year on on the radio. Okay. I actually started at 17 the year before. But uh, this was my first big, you know, I, I had done local weather forecasts, obviously, like every disc jockey did. But uh, th- this was the first time that a hurricane, significant hurricane, had threatened Florida during my uh, time on the radio, which was in my hometown, Melbourne, in uh, the uh, summers. So... Uh, the reason that I was reporting on it in Melbourne, Florida, because remember it was a Gulf hurricane, was because on that Saturday, it hit Sunday night, on that Saturday it was forecast to hit the panhandle of Florida. So it was a Florida hurricane at that point, and hurricane warnings were issued for the Florida panhandle, and there was nothing up for the Mississippi coast. So that's why I was uh, talking about it at all on the air in Melbourne. It wasn't because it was a 
a local threat just because it was a threat to the state. Yes. So Kinmeal, you know, was not well forecast well in advance, but of course it was 1969. And uh, the following day, they moved the warnings west to include the Mississippi coast. Subsequent to that, the following February, actually I was a school in Tallahassee at Florida State, and uh, I went with some friends over to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, and we drove through Biloxi, and uh, that was my first encounter with a mega hurricane that you'd stand there on Highway 90, half of which had been washed away completely. With, there was no I-10 back then going across the Gulf Coast. And as far as you could see, there was everything was just wiped out. Uh, wow. And uh, stop signs were bent so that the, the sign part of it, the octagon, was kind of bent around the pole and the pole was leaning back. I mean, you could really see the incredible uh, you know, power of that, uh, of that storm. So anyway, those were my two run-ins with Camille, neither— you know, neither uh, had a direct effect on where where I lived, really. But, of course, it was uh, an epic storm. Now, as we kind of fast forward here, so you, you have a fellow Florida State alum, and so you're at Florida State, you finish your career. Can you just give, give the listeners a, a brief timeline before we kind of really dive into the hurricanes and a contemporary discussion? What, what are the timelines of that 50 year in terms of your career? I mean, just, I mean, literally just walk us through where you worked. <laughs> okay. So it was June of, uh, June 8th, actually, 1968 that I finally got a chance to be a disc jockey uh, on the radio that was my show. My name, my radio name was Barry O'Brien. It's a whole story Oh, man, about listen how to that. <laughs> well, everybody, everybody used a different name. Okay. Brian Norcross is kind of hard to say, you know. Um, and as a matter of fact, as I've worked uh, over the years uh, using my real name, most people have stumbled over it now and again because of the two ends back sure. to back. But in any case, it was a regular thing for disc jockeys to come up with a name. I, it had, I had to do it in a big hurry, and I came up with Barry O'Brien, Barry O on the radio. Uh, so anyway, that was, that was me at 17 years old. I'd been hanging around the radio station just kind of helping out in the afternoon, and they finally gave me a chance to do it, to sign the station on Sunday, Saturday and Sunday mornings and to work uh, in the morning. So, so that was June of 68. And then in, in September of 68, I started at Florida State as a freshman. And I went to Tallahassee and uh, worked at a local radio station there, uh, kind of the top 40 station, the ones all the students listen to. And I did that off and on through uh, late 68 and 69 uh, while I was in school. And and then I also worked at the university station, um, WFSU FM. Oh sure, as Barry, well. as Barry Allen, which I had I didn't know about the flashback then, but but uh, ironically that, that was the name I used. And, and anyway, there are clips of all this on YouTube. It's kind of funny. So uh, I, I did that. I did other things uh, while I was in school there outside of broadcasting. I owned a stereo store, and that's what I used really to put myself through Florida State. Uh, but when that was over in 72, uh, I really didn't know what to do. I was a math major, physics minor. I, I did not study meteorology as an undergraduate. And I, had, I technically could have gotten a mass communications minor, I think. Uh, but I was kind of wondering, what should I do? What should I do? And I had been working in a TV station as an engineer my last quarter as an undergraduate, and I thought, eh, let me just go see if I can find a job like that, which was an engineering job back then, which was a videotape operator 
type engineer. And so I just drove to Atlanta one day, and I knocked on the door, and I said, I just sit here looking for a job. Well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm kind of an engineer. I load videotape. I, I work in a TV station. I'm kind of a sciencey guy. All right, let's talk to the chief engineer. Well, anyway, I got a job as an engineer. In 19, so I started January of 1973 in Atlanta as an engineer. That evolved into being a director at the station WXIA in Atlanta. And uh, that evolved into my moving to the sister station in Denver uh, to direct the news. Wow. And in Denver, that evolved into producing the news, uh, deciding you know, what was going to be the news that day, which is a really weird uh, transition, but it happened. And then I got transferred to the Louisville station to run that news department, as I said. And um, during that time is when I got more interested in sort of thinking about the weather, actually filled in. I assigned myself to fill in for weather for the first time in September of 1978. So I'm coming up on 40 years from my first actual on television uh, weather cast. Yes, yes. And, and then I went back to uh, FSU. It started in 79 uh, to get my master's. And, so that uh, was in meteorology that, at that point. So that was meteorology. It was a special meteorology program that Tom Gleason, who was this great, one of the originating professors of meteorology at Florida State going back to the 50s, he thought that uh, FSU needed to expand into broadcast meteorology. So they, he got together with the dean of the communications school and they designed a master's program for me that instead of doing the research in meteorology, I did research in weather communications. This so, is all connecting uh, a lot of dots for me now, Brian, because I, as we're going to talk yes. about later, a lot of your interest in communication, now I understand it. Right. So that's where all that started. I, I did these research projects I had my because I taught two classes while I was going to FSU. And uh, and I did the 530 and 11 o'clock weather on the little ABC station channel 27 there in Tallahassee. Uh, and so I had my students do these random calls and compile this database that I could analyze for my papers at the end of the of my master's, uh, you know, talking about how people perceived weather information. And, uh, yeah, that became really kind of a foundation of what happened next. So, anyway, when I graduated, which was a year later, so I actually did that master's in one school year. It was insane. And uh, CNN was starting in June of 1980, and they hired me to do the weather. And uh, that evolved to somebody in San Francisco seeing me and my moving to San Francisco and, and doing the weather there. And then I ended up back in Atlanta running documentaries and magazines in 1982 for Ted Turner. And through a convoluted process, I ended up in Miami, but uh, <laughs> I got offered this job in Miami doing the weather, back to doing the weather and in 83. And uh, I've been in Miami, living in Miami ever since, except, you know, when I was working there at the Weather Channel for uh, eight years, I was uh, in Atlanta quite a bit. listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you love weather. And if you love weather, there's no better place to visit than WeLoveWeather.tv. WeLoveWeather.tv is an online community for people fascinated with Mother Nature. Whether you're a casual weather fan who simply likes looking at beautiful photos, or a hardcore weather geek who wants to know more about why tornadoes form, or what the GOES-R satellite launch was really about, WeLoveWeather.tv is the site for you. And since WeLoveWeather.tv was created by the Weather Channel, 
There's no other website that will bring you closer to your favorite meteorologist from the network. Read articles and watch videos from people like Jim Cantori, Alex Wilson, Maria LaRosa, and the rest of the Weather Channel meteorologists you know and love. There are also fun weather quizzes, online forums, and exclusive giveaways that only We Love Weather members can receive. Join for free today to receive a weekly newsletter and be a part of the most passionate weather fan base at weloveweather.tv. And thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we're talking with Brian Norcross, hearing about his fascinating journey. I think just listening to that first part of the podcast, uh, you, you get a good sense of who Brian Norcross is, his background. And for me, even, and someone who's known Brian for some time now, really sort of connects the dots for me in terms of why Brian has not just been a very important figure in sort of the weather communication forecasting, but he has thought quite a bit about the challenge of communicating weather and how the public perceives it. So I want to kind of pivot to that part of the discussion now. Uh, Of course, I think many people know you perhaps beyond sort of your local stops from your exemplary and sort of life-saving work with Hurricane Andrew during your time in, in Florida. But a lot of people may not know that in addition to your stories about Andrew, they don't know that you helped with the hurricane cone. So tell us a little bit about your hurricane experience. I know we don't have time to really go through the entire experience of Andrew, but tell us about sort of the key highlights of your Andrew experience and your role in the hurricane cone of uncertainty. And I really want to spend some time on that because I think it's a challenge even today for people to understand what's being conveyed there. Well, so through the 1980s, I was working for the ABC station, which coincidentally I work for uh, again uh, here these many years later, uh, WPLG in Miami. And I was doing a a weather program, 530 weather, uh, which I called neighborhood weather. And what that uh, involved was telling a story of some kind every day five days a week, from a different location. Now, occasionally when there was a big storm, the location would be in the weather office where I would sit at the weather computer and they'd use the camera and I'd do kind of a uh, techie, geeky kind of explanation of what was going on on the monitors, different kind of uh, weathercast than the normal chroma key kind that you see in the studio. But generally, I'd be in the field somewhere. And that evolved to my telling history stories about South Florida, and that evolved to my spending a lot of time at the history museums in South Florida. And what I learned in the 80s is you can't tell the history of South Florida without talking about hurricanes, because Miami is the most likely place on the coast, most likely major city on the coast to have a hurricane in any one year. And and uh, in the first seven decades of the 20th century, and remember all this was happening in the 20th century, uh, in the first seven decades, a hurricane came over downtown Miami seven times, where the eye actually came over and it went calm in downtown Miami seven times in seven decades. So it's a, it's quite a remarkable part of the history of the city. And that is what really got me thinking about Wow, if any of those hurricanes of the past, because a number of those were Category 4s and quite damaging in the past, but of course it's an entirely different, much more complicated, much more populated city today, started thinking about you know those historic hurricanes hitting modern South Florida and what an incredible issue that would be. And I thought, boy, if I were ever chief, engine, uh, chief uh, meteorologist, 
uh, you know, I'd I'd really be trying to think about what would we do because everybody would be looking at me and saying, what do we do now? We don't really have plans for for this because right now we're talking about in the late 80s and there hadn't been a significant Miami hurricane since 1965 and Hurricane Betsy. So and and during that 20 years, the city had changed just, you know, geometric uh, growth had taken place during that time. So uh, then lo and behold, in uh, 1990, I was hired by NBC uh, to be chief meteorologist of the NBC station in Miami. And all those thoughts I had about what would we have to do to get ready for a hurricane kind of came to the fore. And uh, the station was extremely supportive about whatever I needed, sort of. They were going to try and make uh, happen in terms of getting backup connections to the West Palm Beach radar, for example, and putting in backup systems to be sure we could stay on the air and we could communicate and a whole variety of things that all came into play uh, two and a half years later when Hurricane Andrew came. We didn't know that was going to ever happen. Well, to get to the Cone story, Marshall, um, so part of my task when I first was hired, because I couldn't be on TV for six months because of a contractual clause in my uh, previous contract, which was kind of a normal thing back then. Yeah, there's these no-compete calls. Those things still are around, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're around in some places. A lot of places they've been ruled uh, illegal. But, yes, so I was off the air for six months. And during that time, my my goal and my mission was to think about new ways to do the weather. And uh, I thought about a lot of things, and we did a lot of, of interesting things in the studio, uh, to do the traditional daily weather uh, differently. I'd walk out on piers to give the forecast, and, and there was a, a lot of stuff. And in hurricanes, uh, the idea of how to communicate the forecast always annoyed me, and, and I thought a lot about that. And I thought, you know, w- we can't show these points, because back then it was only three days, it was 72 hours, and you had these three points in the future— and and what did that didn't tell you anything because nobody really thought that hurricanes could be for, forecast three days in advance with any kind of reasonable certainty in the early nineties. It just wasn't you know it just wasn't part of our thinking that that was even practical. So putting a dot on a map was even more ridiculous back then than it is now. Well, somehow, and I do not remember how, and I really wish I did. I was hooked up with Charlie Newman. I started asking around about average errors at the Hurricane Center, and they said, go see Charlie Newman. Well, Charlie Newman was a, an, a just a epic man in meteorology. In fact, I just was reading, I just saw in the bulletin of the American Meteorological Association, um, or Society, um, the, in the bulletin, there's an obituary on Charlie who passed away last year, well into his 90s. And Charlie is responsible for so much of the technical underpinnings of what we do today with hurricane models yes. and everything else. Well, he uh, he lived in in suburban Miami, and um, and he had polio that he had gotten. That I didn't know, understand how he got until I read the obituary just yesterday. As a matter of fact, and. I went to his house, and he took me to his computer room, and he had all these computers, more computers than I'd ever seen in anybody's house, with these screens that were just green. If you remember, those old computer screens in 1991 just had green and black. You know, oh, the screen yes. was black, and the, the type was green. And he showed me from his database what average error ellipses looked like 
for various basins. And uh, he gave me the figures that he had he had kept these. And I come, came to learn later that he had kept them for decades. And he was uh, had this sort of running average error. But it, they were ellipses. They weren't circles. You know, they were longer, a long track uh, than they were a cross track. Well, he gave me the number as I went back and I thought these ellipses, we can't use these ellipses. Let me just take an average of all this because we're just trying to show that that it's not going to it's not points. It's it's an area of risk. It's not just this line, right? That was what I was trying to show. So I averaged out Charlie's errors and made these arcs that represented the sort of the width of each ellipse moving into the future, 24, 48, and 72 hours in advance. And that was the precursor to the cone, which I actually used the first time the Wednesday before Hurricane Andrew hit. So Hurricane Andrew was the first time uh, that was used. So the cone the reason, is, the cone was used by, on, by a private forecaster, a broadcaster, before it was the Hurricane Center? Is that, that what you're saying? Yeah, by 10, by 10 years. Wow. So the reason that it wasn't filled in in a cone fashion was because the software available to us back then didn't allow us to fill in a uh, some sort of a figure on the screen. All we could do is draw lines. And then in, in 1996, when I changed to the CBS station and we got the newer uh, graphics machine that allowed it, we actually made the cone that was uh, drawn in more or less the the way the cone is is done today, except that we had to do it sort of manually with these average errors that were uh, we had them on a piece of paper and a plastic map and and so forth and so on, and then just transferred that manually over to a, a weather map. It was uh, quite a scramble every time the advisory came in. You know, if you were in in about a minute or so, what would you say are the pros and cons of the cone? Because I, it, it still causes some challenges today for some. Well, it's very different now. Back then, first of all, as I said, people didn't really expect you to be able to, to tell you with any kind of precision where the hurricane was going. So they appreciated having a zone of risk, and they kind of got that. But also the cones were so fat back then that if the forecast was at all decent, most of the weather stayed within the cone. Right. So you didn't have this issue that we have to talk about now that the cone only deals with the center of the storm and always, with any significant size hurricane, bad weather is well outside the cone. So right. we have to kind of muddy what the cone means by it to be, uh, you know, just to be fair and be accurate and, and and to convey that there is risk outside the cone. So the idea of am I in or am I out of the cone is not really as valid today as it was back in the day when the cone was uh, a much fatter thing. And sometimes, of course, it was fat because the the tracks weren't so good. But uh, for storms close to the coast, generally the tracks are better. And therefore, most often, most of the bad weather used to stay inside the cone. Are you looking for a place to catch up on the weather stories of the day? Then look no further than the Weather Underground on the Weather Channel. Weeknights starting at 6 p.m. Eastern, Mike Bettis and Alex Wilson recap the stories of the day and look towards the future in the most relaxed weather studio anywhere on TV. Join them in the Weather Cave as special expert guests drop by each night to break down the nation's weather and prepare you for the week ahead. 
Watch Weather Underground weeknights at 6 p.m. Eastern, only on the Weather Channel. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Brian Norcross. And you just heard a really interesting and fascinating story about the evolution of the hurricane cone of uncertainty. And I, I think that a lot of people might not have known that story before listening to that. So I want to now enter a little rapid fire topics phase, uh, talking about some areas related to communication of weather. The first one I want to throw out, and I, and I want to spend about a minute with each of these, Brian. The first one is Sandy. Uh, Superstorm Sandy, I think, is another storm that people resonate with, uh, familiar with, contemporary times. Um, you, I understand, had something to do, or at least with coining the term Superstorm. And I, I know Ryan Maui and I have talked about this in the past. Um, what what were you thinking in terms of the Superstorm? Or I know you were trying to sort of capture this notion of a tropical system that was going to become extra tropical, but what was your goal there? Well, at that time, I was uh, doing hurricanes on the Weather Channel. I was one of the hurricane specialists. But also, I was uh, in management. I was in charge of weather presentation and content. And as Sandy was coming up the coast, the National Hurricane Center, in one of their discussions, mentioned that they were not going to put up hurricane warnings north of uh, Virginia, I think it was, because they were thinking that uh, Sandy would uh, transform into more like a nor'easter, which in their technical parlance would be called a post-tropical cyclone That's Sandy. Right. So it was getting its energy from air mass differences or rather than the water that hurricanes do from the evaporation. Exactly. Right. Well, so uh, when I saw that, uh, and we all thought all, the, all along, by the way, that, that regardless of that kind of meteorological transition that still that this was going to be a significant threat, like a mega nor'easter kind of threat with storm surge and wind and everything else on a large part of the northeastern coast. And I've never liked the term post-tropical cyclone because to me post has a meaning of past and past has a key connotation of weaker and over and, and less threat and so forth. So as it was uh, moving up somewhere over uh, North Carolina, the Hurricane Center put out the, the notice that, that they would uh, transition it. And at that time, they were thinking it was going to be on Saturday. Remember, it hit on uh, Monday. Uh, they were thinking on Saturday it was going to transition to a post-tropical cyclone. And I got with our, our graphics folks at the Weather Channel. I said, we're not going to put post-tropical cyclone on the Weather Channel because this is too dangerous an event unrelated to the technical meteorology of it. So as soon as the National Hurricane Center transitions from Hurricane Sandy to post-tropical cyclone Sandy, we're going to transition to Superstorm Sandy. So uh, that's what we did, and of course it became to be called Superstorm. Now, I can't swear that nobody else had the same idea at the same time, because I was watching the Weather Channel, and we were plenty busy, you know. But anyway, that's where, uh, from a Weather Channel standpoint, at least, uh, Superstorm Sandy came from. Okay, that's that's an interesting evolution there. And I I think that's right. I think... Sandy changed the game. I think it actually changed procedures because there was so much confusion about, okay, who's in charge of it now? How are people going to receive the warnings once it goes from being a hur- from hurricane warnings to this post-tropical? So I think all of that sort of commotion did 
create a better situation for warning the public. Now, I want to transition a little bit over to another sort of topic that I think you had your hand in while at the Weather Channel, naming winter storms. Now, this is one that, boy, it creates a lot of controversy out there in Twitter and in um, weather Twitter. Uh, How did it come about? And do you still think it's a good idea? Yeah, I still think it's a great idea. Uh, the way it came about was, again, I had this the same uh, management uh, job at that time. And now we're talking about uh, late 2011. And uh, came along in October, a snowstorm, which their digital side of the Weather Channel named Snowtober. And, of course, they did hash Snowtober and so forth on the digital platforms. And that was going over so well, I said, put that on TV. Let's call it Snowtober on TV. And that so obviously worked that we needed a name uh, certainly for hashtags because what Snowtober proved is that made Twitter light up and people followed the storm like crazy. So we were going to have to come up with hashtags and names for these Storms, quasi-names, some kind of something or other. And, uh, you know, you you could do Snowvember or something, and uh, it didn't work so well for December and January. But anyway, you were going to run out of names in a big hurry, and none of us wanted to have to be kind of clever on the spur of the moment every time uh, a nameable storm came along. So we decided at the Weather Channel internally to try and see if we could name storms uh, come up with a naming criteria during that winter of 2011-2012. And we convinced ourselves that, yes, we could, that snowstorms, in spite of the fact they're very different than tropical storms and hurricanes, you know, the snow begins, the snow ends, you make a forecast, you put up winter uh, hurricane or the uh, weather service puts up winter storm warnings. We can use the, the facts and the knowledge we have to come up with a naming criteria and so the following year, uh, we decided to name them publicly. And, and the names, uh, as you know, uh, got a lot of play. And, and I made that first uh, naming list sort of originally based on an idea of an executive producer named Pete Schwartz at the Weather Channel at the time. Uh, he and his wife came up with a Roman and Greek names as a basis for, for the names. And, and I kind of morphed them a, a bit to be a little provocative that first year and <laughs> And then slowly over time here, the, you know, the names have sort of normalized as people are either on board or, you know, some people are just not on board with it as long as the Weather Channel does it. But Yeah, I think the there was a lot of controversy that, there because people said, though, right. this is just a ploy of the Weather Channel. I mean, there were high government officials that came out against it. I mean, I, I will say even at the time during AMS under my presidency, there were people that complained that there wasn't more coordination across the enterprise. What, what, what would you say to people that were saying those types of things? I completely agree. I completely agree. And we've, uh, you know, talked to folks at the uh, National Weather Service, and we're still very hopeful, by the way, that the Weather Service will uh, not work with us, will actually take it on just like they did in Britain and Ireland and they have for many years in Sweden and, and other countries. Because everybody acknowledges, I think, that uh, social media, especially Twitter, if you're going to uh, find the information about any kind of event, it needs a hashtag. Yeah. And it's better if the hashtag is set by an authoritative agency. There's no question about it. 
And what we've done uh, with the Weather Channel naming has proved that it works because uh, airlines use it, schools use it, utilities use it, politicians use it. Uh, you know, it's the people that don't like the fact that the Weather Channel is doing it, I think, that, that mostly don't use the names because it, obviously it makes Twitter work better and people that are in the communications business are all about having right that. right and i can certainly see how a competitor or some others may not want to use something that sort of has the weather channel marking on it or dna or origination point but i mean there, the counter argument there as well if everyone's not using it, it creates a confusion level in the public well, I don't think so. I mean, people use it, and if you if you follow the uh, storm name, you'll see your Twitter uh, column, your tweet deck column will just go, go, go. Right. But also, if you put in, you know, hash snow, hash blizzard, hash all those kind of generic things, it'll go, go, go e- even faster. I think that most people would acknowledge that if there were one common uh, hashtag for for the storm that everybody accepted, that it would just consolidate the information uh, more neatly. But generally what happens is people will put both hashtags. They'll put hash snow and they'll put hash and the the storm name. And so it kind of works now. But I'm I'm very hopeful. The United States is more complicated in terms of the weather regime and the way uh, weather forecasts are coordinated. So, you know, it's a heavier lift to do it here than it is in uh, in Britain, where they started a few years ago to resounding success. Uh, we've talked to the the um, uh, head of the British Met, Met Office there, and also the Irish Met Office, and and they're just uh, exceeded their expectations dramatically in terms of the public ex- and media acceptance of, it, it, of their winter storm naming. So, I, you know, I think the evidence is that it's a good thing. But it's not a trivial thing. Sure. And so in a world where everybody's busy, uh, you know, focusing on it and, and doing it right is uh, what really counts. I, I knew this was going to be a challenging podcast because there's so much I want to get to with you, but we're almost out of time. We've got a time for maybe a couple of more quick topics, Brian. I wanted to get your thoughts quickly on what you mean when you say precision is the enemy of accuracy. Well, I think that all of us can can relate to this. We think back to when we were kids and we had a professor in college or a teacher in high school that would talk in jargon that we didn't really understand and would tell us many more things. And we just wanted them to get to the point. Tell me your point so I can understand what you're talking about here. It's a it's you know, I want to I want to understand the forest and then we'll start talking about the trees. So in my mind, sometimes when you're communicating information, what you want to it is accurate to have people understand that they are at risk and that the risk is increasing and that they will know we will know more about whether the risk will continue to increase or decrease later on today because of this bad storm that's more important than them knowing exactly what the radar is showing in terms of the rain bands and the structure of the eye and the recon messages and the SFMR and the uh, details of the models and the spaghetti plots and uh, all of that. So so I, I think that in the modern world, we have become so precise in our communications by thinking that if we're not giving fulsome information with all the background material that we are not 
accurate. And I, I push back against that idea that you can indeed be overly precise and have the, all that information dull the accuracy of the communication in the end because you just put this doubt. You know, we never know exactly. Well, if you if you present uh, if you don't talk about what we know specifically that this is a high risk event based on everything we know, the risk is increasing. If you don't ever get to that conclusive understanding by the person you're communicating with, then uh, you've uh, lost them in the in the weeds. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I just I think you've been sort of uh, at the forefront of thinking about a lot of these issues for decades that really are at the forefront of the weather enterprise now, which I want to use this last few minutes here to get your thoughts on what the weather enterprise could be doing better and what's next for Brian Norcross. So you know, take those two out. Okay. Well, uh, in terms of what we could do better... We have got to get understanding and control of the, what we all do when we put out a seven-day forecasts, 10-day forecasts, uh, where we give specific temperatures seven days in advance or 15 days in advance, heaven knows, sometimes. And what that does to our ability to say that our, uh, we can't forecast with precision into the future, you know they are those are are countervening messages. Yes. Every single day that people look at their phone, yes. they can it, the forecast for a week from now is given with exactly the same precision that our forecast for tomorrow is given with on everybody's phone every single day. Very good point. So we we can't as a, com- a community do that every day and. Expect people to understand that hurricane uh, a hurricane track five days from now is somehow less uh, precise than where it's going to be amazing tomorrow. Point. Yes, this right? is an amazing so point, I Brian. Think, <laughs> I've never thought about it like that, but you're spot on with that. Uh, so I think that's I think that's the biggest uh, issue that we have in communicating with the public is that. It's not just broadcasters. It's the National Weather Service, you know, fills out a database called the NDFD with, you know, absolute numbers at the coastline when a hurricane is approaching. Uh, when when all that uh, was was being developed, uh, General Kelly was in charge of the Weather Service at the time. And and I said to him, what I suggest you do is in your database, when there's a hurricane approaching the coast, put X's in those boxes where there was a above a certain threshold of threat so that nobody thinks that you can forecast exactly where the strong winds are going to be and the heaviest rain is going to be. Well, they didn't do that, and none of us do that, and it's, and it's just bad for uh, people's understanding of the uncertainty of future forecasts. I, I completely we're, – we're almost out of time. i got to get you in, though, with what's next for you. I know you recently relocated back to Miami, so 30 seconds on what you're up to next. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I, I've always actually lived in Miami. When I was at the Weather Channel, yes. I would I would come up and work in the Weather Channel and live there part time, and and I love my my time there. And I still do some work with the Weather Channel. I was up a few weeks ago. So uh, for now, I'm I'm the hurricane specialist on WPLG. We call it Local Ten here in South Florida. It's it's. Uh, you know, I've been living here 35 years. This is my town, and, and it's great to be talking to people but about the, the hurricane threat to this region, which is uh, extreme 
there's no question about it. So for the uh, foreseeable future, uh, you know, you'll see me in South Florida on Local 10, and occasionally you'll see me on the Weather Channel. We, uh, we really appreciate you joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, say hello to my good friends Betty Davis and Max Mayfield there at your station as well. I'll do it. And uh, thank you again for joining us. It's been a fascinating. I wish we had more time because there was so much I wanted to get to, but perhaps have you back. Thank you so much, Brian Norcross. All right, Marshall. Thank you. Thank you.